So the NRL All-Stars podcast, this is Barnsley, back for the weekly Talk and Footy episode. And for this particular one, we've had Luke last week, but this time we've got Maddie Person on board to talk some footy. Maddie Person has just looked at starting some new podcasts in the next couple of weeks as well, which is good. So Perso, we've had you on for a pre-season one to talk about your Tigers, but exciting to get you back on to talk about some footy without the super coach in it, and also that you've got a, a podcast in the works. Yeah, mate, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it's always good to just sit down and talk about footy. We've been caught up in the supercoach world for a while, so you kind of uh, cross narratives a bit, but it's good just to sit down and talk about footy. And, yeah, I haven't done a full-season um, supercoach podcast since about 2016 when I was with Talk back then, so I've got the time to sort of launch something this year, which is pretty exciting. Good stuff. Well, tell us a bit about it before we get stuck into talking footy. What are you going to be doing? Uh, there's the Supercoach Collective, it's going to be called. So, you, as you know yourself and a lot of the boys from the other um, podcasts now, because there's that many uh, good content Supercoach podcasts around now. There's nearly about 20. So, everyone's sort of keen to get on board. I want to have a rotating host every week and get someone off one of the other shows and not just make it completely Supercoach, sort of get to know the, the voice behind the microphone and a bit of chat about footy and a bit of Supercoach. And even Tommy Sangster is pretty keen. So, I'm pretty excited for the series. Good stuff. That sounds great, mate. Well, I'll definitely be keenly listening once they start hitting and everybody else should get on board with the Supercoach Collective when it comes out in the next couple of weeks or so. In the meantime, going to leave the Supercoach out of this one. This is going to be a footy episode. A lot happening in the footy world. So there's a lot to talk about as there always is every single week. But this week, we actually have round one that's just hit. So we've all been able to watch round one. It was all really exciting. A lot of narratives going into every season, including this one. And it's great just to see some footy on the field and some things happening. I thought it was a really good round. I really enjoyed it, actually. Like, I I don't really remember coming into a round one for a few years where I've sort of, the, the, the first game's come up and I've been that excited or that keen for it that week. I don't know. Maybe it's because of the COVID years, the last two or so years, you know, you sort of, you were coming out of that a bit and you've got like a, hopefully a, you know, proper year of footy. Uh, maybe that's it per se, but I was really excited for this round and I was quite impressed with a lot of the footy that I saw. How good was it? How was it to have NRL back? It's, um, yeah, it did seem for some reason this year there was a bit more anticipation than normal. Probably, as you said, touched on with the last two seasons being interrupted with COVID. Mm. You know, look, a lot of teams haven't, although the Melbourne playing tonight, haven't played in front of their home crowd since um, 2019, Cameron Smith was blind, was saying. So the couple of games they did have there, the, there was no crowds at the time because of COVID. So it's just, uh, I think that's got a lot of anticipation about it. Teams playing back in front of their home crowds and fans getting right into it. So I, enjoy, I watched every game last weekend, even a couple of bludges, but it was uh, I enjoyed the whole round. Yeah, I only missed a little bit of the um, Cowboys-Bulldogs game. I didn't quite get to see all of that. You didn't miss much. Yeah, I, I didn't think that I did. Um, <laughs> I thought that there was something wrong at halftime and there was a bit of a delay because I sort of stopped watching and then I was looking on my phone while I was making dinner and different things and I was like, oh, it's still 6-4. Yeah, so <laughs> didn't miss too much there, but, you know. I thought, this, I thought the South Broncos was a bludgery game, but that um, the cow, Cowboys and Bulldogs was it was bad, but um, still good, if you know what I mean. Oh, it was. 
Yeah, it's just good to have footy back though, and uh, and it was so. as far as the numbers and stuff go, like it was the biggest uh, round one ratings that we've seen in history. So they, they've started bringing out the ratings for the first round of footy, and it's gone ex- exceptionally well. Uh, NRLW as well is higher than what it's been in the past years, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the podcast too. But focusing on round one, you know, let's start off with the worst because you've already talked about it a little bit. Who who was your worst of round one as far as the teams go? Who was your most disappointing? Now, I'll say for me, it was South Sydney. Yeah, you started same. to raise it. Yep. Yeah, same. Okay. Yep. Well, we, you started to raise that South game. And I mean, I'll I'll tell everyone a little bit, a bit of a story about me watching that South game. I was that excited about the round and we got to that one and I keyed up with my brother-in-law to, to get a leave pass and go out. And we went to the pub. We watched the Sharks and the Raiders at Heathcote Pub. That was great in the Shire. Got to see. Oh, that, that was a great game. It, it was a really good game to watch. The pub was pumping in the Shire. You know, everyone was on board for the Sharkies. It was all great. You know, after the game, we raced back to his place to watch the Souths and Broncos game in his shed and have some beers and stuff there. And honestly, like, I, I could not believe how bad that game was. Um, and I, I'm really quite surprised how many people were talking up the Broncos because, you know, 11-4 probably says a lot of it. But uh, we were... As much as I love the footy on the weekend, Perso, that was one game where I was actually praying to end. And we both of us sort of looked at each other halfway through and went, we just need this to end because then we can put on some music and just forget about it because we really didn't want to watch the rest of that second half. So I thought South for me, their attack looked very clunky. Um, before, the season, before the season actually kicked off, I actually pinpointed Walker to have a really good year for South. And I thought that in the last two years... He really developed his game and he kind of matured both as a player and a person. And on the field, you could kind of see it where he was actually managing games a lot better and he was able to take the reins from A-Ray a lot more and be able to run that team. Um, and I just thought he went completely missing and it wasn't the walker that we saw last year. And beforehand, I actually thought he was going to have a great game. Uh, I did think that Damien Cook was pretty positive, though. I saw him running a lot more and, you know, him and Arrow were probably the only positives I'd take away. But, geez... Aside from the attack per so defensively, Josh Mansour is so past the NRL, it's not funny. So, I mean, for me, I'm saying a lot about Souths here and the Broncos weren't fantastic either, but that was my take on Souths. But since they're your pick too, I imagine that you you saw a lot of the same. Yeah, especially after what you said about the... I really enjoyed the um, the Sharks-Raiders game and my wife's a Raiders supporter, so it was a... Um, wedding anniversary actually so we were up at Shoal Bay we were sitting there at the country club watching that it was a good game of footy went back to the um, the apartment we were staying in she went to bed I thought oh, I'll get to watch South and Broncos on my own and I was keeping <laughs> having a real hard time keeping my eyes open it was a terrible game both sides are as bad as each other like people are talking about the Broncos oh it's a good effort and they beat South but I mean they both made the same amount of errors they had the same possession almost it was 52 to 48 Broncos to South both teams had 14 errors it was, yeah, you know, it was just a blatter of a game. And um, completely right about it. That's, I mean, Blake Taft did, was a late scratching. And we all know Alex Johnson. He's a good winger, but he, he's not a fullback's arsehole. So that's, he's, he's certainly no Latrell. I think they really missed Latrell in that game. That that as disjointed as they looked and how um, much Cody Water sort of looked a bit out of water there. I think with Latrell Mitchell at the back, it's a, a fair difference. So if I was a South fan, I wouldn't be. But you just write that one off. But yeah, geez, it was a it was a bludger of a game. Yeah, and I mean, I agree with you on Latrell too, and it's a good point. He's going to make a big difference for them. 
Um, I don't think Taft being out really makes a huge difference because I don't particularly rate him that highly and obviously he hasn't played for very long, so he might get better later on. But Latrell is going to make a huge difference. One of the things with Latrell, though, and I've mentioned this on some of the podcasts, you know, previously in the preseason, he it can kind of go one of two ways with him. And there's been a lot of media about him. He had a big interview the other day and stuff talking about what he's going to change this year or if he's going to change anything. And one of the things with him back to his Roosters days is people talk about him being lazy. And, you know, he is at times with his work rate, but it is also just part of his game. And a lot of great players have been like this where they come in and out of games and that's the best way to get the best out of them because they aren't the type of player that can just be involved in every second play and just around the ball all the time. That's just not who they are and it's not how they're most effective and they can't do the brilliant stuff if you're asking them to do that. So I do. I have always wondered with Latrell that if he is a marquee player in a team and the team's like built around him and he's the one who has to actually lead that team, can he actually do it? And, and that's going to be a question mark coming out of round one for me for South because I'm not sure that he can. And that's where it's going to be like, can can Cody Walker and Damien Cook step up enough where those three guys can lead the team? Because I'm actually not sure that Latrell's got it in him to be able to, that, to be able to be involved enough to lead a team to wins and still do the special things that he's able to do on the football field because he's a special talent. It could go completely the other way, though, per se. He's still a really young man. He might have matured his game like I thought Cody Walker did last year, and this might be an opportunity for him. He might actually blow us out of the park on our expectations. Yeah, 100%. You've hit the nail on the head. The Souths um, depend on whether Latrell can do that or not this year because Cody Walker's not that player. He's not going to lead the team around and he doesn't play his best football what he's trying to. So you, you can't rely on him trying to turn into a bit more of Adam Reynolds when they've got the young half Elias learning his craft. It's really got to come from Latrell and, as you said, Cook. Both of those two need to really step up and control the game and then set that way takes the pressure off Ilias and uh, Walker can still sort of play the same way he always plays. So but if that fails, then um, it's going to be fairly tough for South, actually. Yeah, and it's probably not fair on us to, um, I guess, completely dismiss Ilias. I think a, a lot of fans kind of did on the on the round one performance because he didn't really do a lot. But, I mean, he's he's going to get better and better. And he we haven't seen enough of him, I think, to have any judgment. Like, he, he we've seen that many halves come in and certainly a lot of them end up having a bad sophomore year. But their first year, they more more so than the second year, a lot of halves can blow it away if they are a top-tier blue-chip talent. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised because Souths have earmarked this young fella for a long time now to be their future halfback. I wouldn't be surprised if Elias actually has a lot better next few games than what he did that first game, um, and that's going to really help him. Yeah, I think he looked, didn't look too bad, Elias, for a rookie half. I, I reckon he looked all right. The signs there. More concerning was the... Uh, Broncos dominated South Pack. Mm. That was that was a, they just had that middle the whole game pretty much, and that's you, you can't really do much off that with a rookie half and your fullbacks out, and it's you can't really expect them to. I mean, you probably would expect they could have done enough to have beaten the Broncos, but um, you can't expect them to to dominate a side when Haas and Harrigan and Gay were they they dominated that middle third of the field, so that's where the Broncos won the game for more, and they're. they're their spine wasn't really any better. They didn't like it was, it was eleven to four. It wasn't a high-scoring game where they, where the Broncos did butcher a couple of opportunities, but it um, it was their pack that won in that game. I thought. Yeah, and look, that's I think if you're going to look at what the Broncos' strength is, it probably is their pack. So you can almost half excuse South for that. But I mean, South's pack has obviously been watered for a lot of years. 
and I think that it's kind of it's kind of overrated at this point. So, I mean, I already said I thought Cook went okay. I liked that he was running the ball a lot more in round one, and hopefully we see more of that. I thought Murray was a bit quiet. He actually got a few a few less minutes than what I thought he would as well. So it's going to be interesting with the Dimitri rotation because I think they really need to rely on him. And uh, I thought Arrow was very good. Then the problem is that you've then got these guys that are really good role players that I think could be found out. So when you're starting, you know, Nichols is solid, but he's not going to be phenomenal. And then off the bench, you've got Host, Havili, Burgess, Cheekham. None of those guys are that fantastic, you know, and it's certainly not a pack that stacks up with the, the, the top, you know, half a dozen packs in the competition, if that's where they want to finish. Kuala Matangi could be anything. He, he's got immense talent, but he actually really needs to come through and show it this year for me. And I didn't quite see it round one. And he's the other one that probably needs to step up. Yeah, I was really surprised that uh, he didn't play 80 minutes and Jacob Host set up. He played 58 minutes, I think, Colin Matoni, So Weird rotation awesome. on a couple of those forwards, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, especially the way Colin Matoni finished off the season last year. He was going really well, but he was on the left too, so that's moving to the right. So, I don't know. If you're a South fan, you wouldn't be getting too worried. There's a few strange things there. New coach tried a few different things. It doesn't work. They might revert to more similar styles to last year, but it certainly it wasn't encouraging. It was a terrible game of football. Yeah, and it, when you look at it outside of Arrow, uh, Host was actually the highest minutes out of anyone since you mentioned him, um, aside from Murray. Murray. Murray and Arrow played the top minutes, but then um, Jacob Host is your third leading in minutes. And it just... Uh, didn't look good for Souths. Um, where to... That was Murray's Murray's first hit out for, after the shoulder operation too, so you can kind of forgive mm. that a bit, but um, he'll only get better for the run. And, I mean, look, we are pretty down on Souths when it is just one game. Oh, I do think they were the worst team for round one. Can you see him turning it around for round two, or do you think that we saw enough in round one that's going to say they're going to have some issues? No, it won't surprise me at all if they come out and play well tonight. I can't say Bernie Melbourne for... for um, First game back in front of the home crowd and Bellamy's 500th game and the Storm were just a, one of those milestone stone games. But I expect them to be better than they were last week. So if they come out and the Storm and up put 40 or something on them, then, yeah, that'll be a bit more alarm bells ringing. Yeah, and Melbourne has never lost to Souths in Melbourne. So that's that's a pretty bad stat for them. Um, yeah, I think Souths have only beat them five times out of 35 <laughs> occasions. So... South's win would be somewhat of a miracle after what we've seen, but I do expect a better performance. Let's talk about the positives. The best team that we thought of round one. Yeah, for me, it was Penrith. I really thought that Penrith were just absolutely stellar when it was a side that was obviously missing their best player in Nathan Cleary, which we didn't really know until about a week leading into round one that he was even going to miss the game, let alone a few games. I thought O'Sullivan came in and was phenomenal. He's probably better than half of the league starting halfbacks the way he played, if he could continue that. And I thought he was great. Yao was an absolute superstar, though. The, the amount, like, that was a phenomenal leader's knock. The way he led that team, he was involved in a lot of the stuff, the the passing at the line that he was doing, the, the hard runs that he was doing, the runs behind the ruck that was making great metres, his defence, he played the full 80 minutes. He did everything, and he really led that team, and I thought he was phenomenal. I was really impressed with Stephen Crichton, I thought that he came out playing really confident, um, which is something that we didn't see from him all of last year. But in that centre role on that side that he was on in round one, I worked really well for him. And then and Kikau as well, I think there was a big question mark for me on how he was going to perform round one because 
he has just obviously signed a contract in the offseason to leave after this year. And he was a guy that wasn't necessarily the fittest or most motivated at different times. Certainly consistency might be something that people bring up last season because he was better in the seasons before, I think. But he came out firing too. So I, I think all of Penrith, like we got through that first half and I sort of looked around and, and said, well, at halftime, I don't think the Penrith made an error in the first half. Like they were just that in sync and that well-oiled. They were like a machine. And for round one, you don't really see that. So I think Penrith really put a stamp on round one and they were the best for me. Oh, they were outstanding. That, that was my best as well. Always, there's a couple of other teams that played really well, but I was just so impressed with the Panthers on Thursday night last week, you know, especially with our Cleary. Like, uh, as, as you say, Sullivan just slipped straight in that role, and his kicking game was Cleary esque. You, you wouldn't have known if you didn't look at who was on the on the field just watching the kicking. You'd think it was Cleary. It was outstanding. Mm. And you touched on Zoya. Yeah, for me, he's the most, probably the most underrated and most improved player over the last three seasons. He's He's outstanding. He's integral to that sort. And uh, he had an absolute blonder in that game. Well, they were just, I don't think Manly played that badly. That was the thing. They just got absolutely suffocated out of the game. The Panthers' line speed was unbelievable and it was relentless for the whole 80 minutes. And the, as the kicking game was just outstanding. They, they took Turbo out of the game. That template was just kicked to the corner high and just run in and smash Saab. And then you're making Turbo hit the ball up out of his corner and you sort of kept him out of the game. And you look at the, even the stats was like, man, they weren't bad. Panthers had a lot more possession and they suffocated them out of it. But the Panthers completed at 86%, Manly completed at 82%. It was a quality game. There was, as you touched on the errors, Panthers made four, Manly made eight. There was only 12 errors in the whole game. A lot of people have been down on Manly, but I really don't think they played that badly. Penrith just didn't allow them to get into the game. Yeah, I half agree with you on Manly, and I, and I half don't. Um, the half that I do agree with, like I think that particularly when you're looking at their backs, like I don't think that I don't think in attack Manly had the the time to do much more than what they did. Um, so I don't, I certainly don't think you know Turbo or DCE played badly. Uh, it was just defensively for me that I disagree a little bit because I thought. There's a couple of really worrying signs defensively for me. Like in attack, I think they'll be fine. I just think that it was Penrith were, were so good and Manly weren't bad at all in attack. But defensively, uh, there was a couple of real worrying signs for me. To, I I thought that Bullimore and to a much lesser extent, Ola Kawatu on the edges, I thought looked like it was a game in 1995 where you had props on edges. That's how slow I thought they looked. Their pack in general looked really slow to me. And that's a real concern in the game in 2022. I'm surprised that Bullimore would be able to stick in that side for a few rounds with how much they targeted that side. Brad Parker as well. You know, he's for all he's trying and, and everything, he was he got shown up multiple times um, with his, his speed, his agility, his ability to be able to go from, you know, I think there was one time, I can't remember who it was that ran down that side, but one of the players ran down that side and you know, five metres out from the, the guy with the ball, he's just slipped over because he couldn't go left to right and just even keep with the speed of the game. And then you got Kepi that came on, and Kepi got absolutely found out three or four times defensively. You know, and when you're looking at the line breaks, it was you know, on edges where you had Ola Kawatu, um, Kepi there for some reason at times where he was sort of moving slightly from the middle, uh, Brad Parker and, and Bullimore. I, I really thought that they just looked slow, mainly in their forwards. 
And that's going to be an issue for them because I don't know what changes they can really make there. And if, if that's what their pack's going to be, um, I do think that's a bit of a worry because obviously there is guys that are staples in that pack, like Tapao and Jake Travojevic, that are great players and they didn't play badly. But they're not particularly fast guys either. And certainly Jake's lost a lot of his athleticism and speed the last few years, which has been well documented. So all of a sudden, you know, you've got these packs coming in to the game the last sort of two years, which are really athletic and really fast, have great line speed, laterally move very well, and, and even edge back rowers that used to be centres. Yeah. And then you've got Manly in the opposite direction. So that was a big one for me. And I'm really keen to see what happens in round two with that because the Roosters have some, despite what we saw in round one, good edge players to attack with on either side with Satili and Angus, along with obviously their strike centres. So I'm interested. That was a part of me that really got me with Manly that I hadn't seen before. Oh, they, yeah, they couldn't keep up with the game for sure. Um, they did miss Schuster. He's probably one of their only quicker sort of forwards. But That's a very good point too, yeah. I found that Desi did them no favours with that bench either. In a game like that, um, mm. they they did sort of compete. But yeah, I thought some pounds simply sort of did a job early and then when they went off the field, they had nothing. And um, you're going into a game, like I know Desi's had Walker there as the utility, but he was out, so they put Cooler there. And I, I thought that really hurt him, not having another forward that could come on. I mean, Cooler came on with like five minutes to go or something. It was a strange bench coming up against the Panthers side, I thought. Yeah, it was. And I, I mean, look, I'm being pretty down on Manly. The reality is I, I thought that they're fine in attack. It was just defensively, there was a couple of things that stuck out for me that I think are going to be interesting. And that's why they can't compete with those top three sides. Mm. Top three or four sides, they get shown up in the bigger games and they're sort of flat track bullies in a way. They can dominate the, the, the smaller sides, but um, even Melbourne showed it last year. Like, man, they had all the form coming into the semis and Melbourne just snuffed them out of the game. They haven't got the ability at the moment in that side to go to the next level. And I don't think it's their spawn. I think you're right. It's the forward pack. Yeah, it's definitely the forward pack for me. The dogs and cows was was obviously bad, like you mentioned too, and it was fairly puzzling because it's two sides where you expected there to be mass changes in what they were doing. I was quite surprised that you know, especially like with the attack we're talking here, yeah, the, the attack and the cows wasn't there, and they just spent seven hundred fifty k on Chad Townsend, who was meant to be the answer in the halves. But for the dogs, especially like Barrett has to show some sort of creativity or some sort of variance in his attack when he's getting you know, troops that are a lot better. You know, we had eight new faces that were in the side, although TPJ pulled out, and you would expect that the attack is going to, you know, be different and vary a little bit more. There's no point in playing 800K players, 600K players, the same as what you're doing with 200K and 300K players. There's a different talent level there. So I I was quite surprised with that game that it was as bad. Um, I don't think the cows will be very good anyway um, for this year. And the dogs, I think, oh, I did think would improve, but like you know, not be last. But I thought they'd be better. But the the attack just wasn't any good. Um, so I was quite surprised with that with round one. I thought both would come out a little bit better and a bit harder. Tigers, your Tigers put on a good display though, and that's a, a positive to finish on for the round. Um, the Tigers, I thought, I actually backed them. I, I thought they could have won that game. Um, and it was probably in a way disappointing that they didn't, um, considering Melbourne's injuries and stuff. They had that game and they didn't put it away. But it was still a pretty spirited effort. Yeah, it's just there's a couple of things there with the Tigers. They put a good effort in, and um, just our edge defence is still rubbish. That's it showed up in the trials in that Roosters game when the Roosters had what two opportunities, and both times they got their scored down the edges. Melbourne did the same thing on the weekend. 
even when all the injuries went down and we were leading 14-4, I never thought at any moment that Melbourne didn't have us in that game. You could just tell that they just, it's just, we lacked that class, couple of class players to close a game out. That's what we lacked in that. That and our defence is still rubbish. I don't know how we fix it without changing personnel, but it was a spirited effort. It was it was good, and it, but I just felt Melbourne always had that game, even with the players they were missing. So, yeah, I think we showed enough that we could be one of the better crap sides. <laughs> <laughs> like after watching the watching the Cowboys and Bulldogs, and the, I think we got them sort of covered. But we're we're still a couple of class players away from being able to push towards the being regularly in that bottom end of the top eight. We're just going to be fluffed. Well, we'll win some games. We'll lose some games. I'm not expecting much out of them this year, to be honest. But the the best thing I took out of that game was uh, both Hastings and Brooks's comments after the game. You know, the Tigers of old sort of, oh, you know, we competed with Melbourne. It would have been a good effort. Hastings was filthy that they didn't close it out. I think that was a really good, um, yep. good sign for the club that they're going in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think the Tigers should hold their heads up pretty high, but they're obviously going to get tested and it's a much longer season than round one. So it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back in round two. Turbo time nullified. That's our next topic to talk about. Has Turbo started to get nullified? Now, Perso, this is something that I did have in the back of my mind last year. And I want to be, you know, totally positive and transparent as well with everyone listening, not thinking that Barnes has gone crazy. Turbo was the best player in the league last year. He was. He was outstanding. It was an amazing season. It's up there with the top seasons, whether you want to talk about Hayne in 2009 or uh, GI's magnificent season a decade ago and all these top-tier players. You know, Turbos was right up there. No question he's one of the top players in the league and you could argue he's the best player in the league based on last year coming into this one. Nothing negative about Turbo. But in the back of my mind last year, uh, especially when I'm... Going through the draw and the stats and stuff, Turbo played 15 games and only, I think, three of those, I think it was, were against top five teams or something. Ten out of the 15 were against non-top eight teams. And very quietly, Manly actually had a good draw anyway and Turbo also avoided some of the harder games because he was out injured and only played the 15 games. So it sort of was in the back of my head, you know, well, is it a bit in the middle, you know, did he have a, an all-timer season that we really can't criticise, but at the same time need to kind of put in context that it wasn't like he was playing, you know, the top four teams twice for that for that run either. That was in my head. Um, the other thing that was in my head too is obviously what you mentioned in, in the first topic about round one when we talk about whether in the final with Melbourne, you know, they had a blueprint and whether it worked or not. I thought towards the end of last season there was a couple of games, including that one in the big games, where he wasn't quite as good. Uh, and then we just saw it in round one as well, where he didn't have the best game. I don't think he was bad, but certainly by the standards of last year, he didn't have the best game. And the other thing that I was thinking at the end of last season was, this is the first year that Turbo's like, really hit his potential. And to be fair to him, he's only just hit his mid-20s. Like He's got a lot of time to be an all-time great, and I think that he will be. But he's only just hit his mid-20s, and this was actually the first season, despite how much we've talked about him for a number of years, this was his first full season playing at that top-tier super, superstar level. He actually hadn't done that before for an extended period of time. So I also thought the way he played was slightly different and varied to how he has before, and everyone talks about the Origin Series, how he you know, went everywhere and had this roaming role, which he hasn't had before, and how well that worked. You know, His skill set really developed last year. All of a sudden, you've got him playing a bit of a different game, 
and teams have a full off season where they're doing video and Manly are a top heavy team, every single team would have been looking at, you know, we've got to take away DCE's time and most of all, just turbo. That's our focus. And you could hear in round one, players calling out his name from Penrith. Turbo's there, Turbo's there, Turbo left. You could hear it the whole game. I'm just thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if, you know, teams have just sort of figured him out a little bit and how he's going to respond to that. So I'm not going to say that he's been nullified, but I do think that it's a question at the moment on how he responds to that. Perso, what do you think about him potentially being nullified or not being able to back up last year's season? It's going to be extremely hard to back up a season like that. Um, You were bang on, which gets back to my point with the the flat track bullies with Manly, throw the ball to Tom. He... uh, he, they did have a really good run when he played. Uh, I think it's oh, he, he didn't play bad. Like he doesn't play ever play bad. But I think the stronger sides have got better cattle at their disposal at, to control a game plan that's going to keep him out of it at the points where he's dangerous, which is what Penrith showed on the weekend. And I think the the change to the rules this year, the six agains, and not only that, this, the the more penalties that are coming to the game that aren't off the back of the ruck infringements, but this is probably another topic. But um, he had a lot of momentum off that last year and you know, hit the middle third and just carve up and follow through. Where there's a lot more penalties, a lot slower, there's less uh, fatigue in the middle if this is the trend that's going to continue. And then the better sides with their kicking game can keep him out of it. There's only certain sides that will be able to execute that sort of template that's there. So he's still going to carve up the lesser sides. But I, it's yeah, I don't have he's nullified, but he's definitely there's definitely a template there to sort of control his input into the game, and the better sides will do that. It's where Manly needs to get better at, to have more options and rather just relying on time. Because you watch that season last year, and it's they were terrible the first four games of last year, absolutely terrible. Oh, they're horrific. Yeah. yeah, everyone had him in the bottom four after that, and then he comes back and they're a completely different side. I know a lot of that's direction from fullback and pointing guys in the right spot, but it was just sort of like under eight, throw the ball to Tom and he was going to do something. That's never going to be sustainable. So mainly you've got to get a, they've got to get a plan A and a plan B and a plan C and maybe use Tom as more of a decoy sometimes so the defence goes and then they have another plan inside and they start carving teams that way and then the, the defences will start to think, oh, okay, maybe Tom doesn't get it and he's not going to be the mainstay. They, they've got to come up with something otherwise... I can see Tom sort of, yeah, as you say, he will be nullified to a point. And if he is nullified, again, top-heavy team, and by top-heavy I mean like they've got their their top, you know, few players, and then they use a lot of role players to support those players. So if you nullify Tom, even to 75% of his ability, then Manly is in big trouble in winning football games. So it's going to be very a very interesting topic. It's one that's been raised a couple of times. There is some data there to support that maybe it's started to happen. Uh, but with all great great players, they do have the ability to adjust to any changes in the game or any changes in the opposition. And Tom has all the ability in the world to be able to do that. So there might be all the game plans in the world. Some teams won't execute them as well, like you said, but the ones that do, you know, Tom can vary his game and Manly could do him some favours too and try and vary that as well. I find it really interesting that you've got someone as smart and as great as Tom is on a football field who's also a great ball runner, but Manly rarely put him in situations the last 12 months where there were set plays with him and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but whether that's, um, you know, the inside ball uh, that 
that Jake Friend used to do with Teddy that Jake Turbo used to do with his brother sometimes where you throw it in, you throw it out and then back inside to, to hit the markers when they were lazy and you'd have the fullback screaming up the middle. And that would work quite well with the top fullbacks, including Turbo. And we haven't really seen that as much. You know, that's just one play. You know, there's obviously the, the, the sweet plays as well that he gets all the time, but you just like to see some variance. You know, even just Tom cutting back on the inside on some plays and things, running the ball, or as you said, being a decoy and using that to their advantage. They just don't seem to have that many plays. So, yeah, they could definitely do him some favours. It's going to be interesting. I'm not going to say Turbo Tom's nullified, but I'm, I'm going to say that it's going to be much harder to back up this year, and I don't think that he will. Next one is going to be a positive one, Perso. We're going to talk about some positive news. NRLW expansion. The women's game, it's just come out, are going to be eight teams strong in 2023, 10 teams strong in 2024. Currently, obviously, it's six teams, so that's decent growth. The pay for an average women's player is going to be 28% higher. Oh, yeah, it's all fantastic. Uh, the, the ratings on TV have been much better. Uh, obviously there is always going to be some detractors and certainly there is some more to unpack with this. But as a whole, you know, to me, one of the positives with this is that the NRL has invested in it and they have committed to it, which I think is great. Um, And probably the biggest positive for me with the NRLW is that the NRL haven't been pressured into doing like the AFL model because I really don't think the AFL did a good job with it. The AFL went from eight to 10 teams quite quickly and then to 14 teams within three years or sorry, or four years. And 14 teams just didn't have, they didn't have the amount of professional level players to be able to do that, which obviously means that the quality of the games was so poor a lot of the time. Uh, And it was just, I watched some of the AFLW, not consistently, and it was just very hard to watch because of that. It wasn't the girls' fault that were playing. It was just that probably only a third of them really should have been playing in a top tier competition and the AFL put too much pressure and too much uh, I guess, push on making sure they had heaps of teams. So I did like at the start that the NRL only started with a small amount of teams, but they did always need to build it up. So certainly 10 teams in 2024 makes sense. Um, and I think it is, you know, positive growth in a growth area of the game. Oh, I think it's outstanding for the game. The NRL's putting the time into the women's game. The growth is good. The eight teams next year and then 10 teams. And then ideally within sort of maybe a five, six year period, you'd have enough in the ideal world, you'd have a national reserve grade side and a national women's comp with every team in the comp has got one of both and you'd have three games on a weekend, but that's a long-term plan. But mm. I think the NRL's doing a, a good job with the growth of the game. And, and I love watching the women play. It's um, sort of a throwback to because obviously it's in their infant stage, so it's nowhere near as structured and, and uh, financially professional as the men's side are, and you wouldn't expect that from the, the, the stage that they're at, but mm. they, they absolutely give it to each other. They throw everything into it, and I actually like the style of footy they play. They, it's sort of, I was saying, the sort of throwback to the, like the 90s period is because they sort of just play what they see in front of them. There's not really that structure, so you just got these talented players running around, seeing in front of them, playing sort of the old eyes-up footy, and they absolutely give it to each other. Do they hit hard? Yeah, and they love playing the game, which is you know always such a good thing to see. Uh, I mean, if there is going to be some some negatives to it, but there always is going to be like you can come up with a lot of negatives of every sport and every single league in the world. You know, there's certainly things that they could do better. Uh, the, but I think with the NRLW for me, like even when I talk about things that I don't like about it or, or parts of it negatively, it's it's all got to be put into perspective, and it's all very relative. Like I can say that. I don't think the quality of it is phenomenal. It's not like anywhere near the quality of the NRL men's, 
But, oh, but, but it, no way near. But it shouldn't, shouldn't be, right? expect that either. That's right. Yeah, it's all about that's expectation. Right. And I think that's what a lot of fans need to probably realise. You know, you should have the right expectations. Don't go in thinking it's going to be the NRL men's. You know, it's not. And it's not going to be for a very long time. But the NRL men's, you know, has been going for well over a century. And in 1908, it wasn't, you know, much chop either. And it was even in the 1990s, you can watch the games on Fox League and still see the players' occupations coming up with their name when they're goal-kicking and stuff. You know, like it's not that long ago that they weren't professional either. So, um, but that's probably also brings me into the part two where, you know, I'm really supportive of the women's game, but it also needs to be really careful too about what it's pushing for. Um, So for me, you know, when you're talking about, uh, you know, full-time pay, and, and full-time contracts is a, is a massive deal at the moment. And I fully get it, you know, like if you're an athlete and you want to be the best at what you do, if, if, you're, not, if you're not paid a full-time wage to just do that job, you're never going to be as good as you can be and the quality is never going to be better. So it is hard and I kind of agree with the girls in a way. On the other hand, though, one of my big issues with the NRLW, and it's not this isn't the player's fault, but it currently only goes for five rounds plus finals. You know, to me, that's like, it's like an exhibition almost, you know, when you're doing that. It is. It's it's sort of the work that the NRL is putting in to promote it, and it's sort of well, we're not really. <laughs> That's why, yeah, a five six weeks season. I don't really understand that, but I don't know they don't have more teams. But you still think you go for at least twelve rounds or something like that, and yeah, maybe start it later in the season if that's the case, so you can sort of coincide the semi-finals with the the men's semi-finals and sort of showcase it a bit more if if they're serious about growing the game. There's a few um, things I need to Yeah, and I think that the NRL was really good in the first, uh, I'll I'll give them two seasons. I was going to say one season, but maybe I'll stretch it to two in just keeping it small. Um, But uh, but after you basically have an exhibition season with four teams, you've got to get fed income. And if you're going to invest in it, you need to invest in it. And it needs to be, you know, getting up to a decent amount of teams, but also getting to a decent amount of games. You know, if we have 10 teams in 2024, You'd hope that those teams could pay, play each other twice, and you've got a, a twenty-round season. Hundred you know, percent. Don't don't do something silly like do an eight-week season where they don't all even play each other, and that's kind of a fear of mine. At the same time, though, it's why I also disagree with with some of the NRLW push on the contracts because you can't get paid a full-time contract if you're only playing three months a year. Yeah, and I've done plenty of contract work and stuff, as I'm sure everyone has. You can't say, I'm going to do this three-month job for you, but I want you to pay me for, you know, the year so I can put my feet up. I'm not saying they put their feet up. They've all got other things to do, but you know what I mean. You know, it's it's a catch-22. Oh, 100%. I'm all, all for pushing um, more parity with women's sport to men's sport, but the, the thing that a lot of people probably don't realise, that where the money comes from, in professional sport is the TV rights deals. Mm. So you can't sort of, the women's, it's all of a sudden you think, where's the money coming from? Where's the, the like, it, if they can build it up in a in a way that it showcases the game and you'll get more viewers and you'll get more people watching and you'll get more interest in it and you'll get real revenue from merchandise and crowds and all the rest of it, that's when you can slowly start to build up the finances for the female sword. It's it's just not that easy to go, okay, we'll throw you in your professional. And then, as you're saying, if they're only 10 teams and you only play five of them once or something, then whatever we'll semifinals. So that's not going to grow the game. If they're serious and they're going to, with the 10 teams, they should, as you said, should play each other twice and they should start at five rounds 
into the, the men's season so you can coincide the seasons together. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, look, you, you will see the quality, you know, hopefully improve if you do that as well. So it's a catch-22 with that as well. And I mean, the state of origin is a good example. Like, I actually disagreed with the women getting paid the same as the men last year. And it wasn't it wasn't anything to do with me not wanting to grow the sport and not wanting the girls rewarded or anything. But the state of origin, you know, if you go back past the last season, the state of origin was half the league playing in one state of origin game. You know, like it's... It was four teams, and and basically two of those teams made the state of origin game. You know, it's it's not quite the same. Um, and at the same time, too, you know, you mentioned the revenue and stuff. That the state of origin is one of the highest TV deals in Australia. You know, with the ratings that it gets and the amount of money that it pulls in. And at the moment, the NRL is still propping up the NRLW financially. There just isn't that money there to be doing that. So, oh, and. The, the NRL athletes are full-time athletes. Now, again, I'm not blaming the girls for that. You know, they probably should keep pushing to be full-time athletes and push the NRL to, to invest in it, but but they're not. So, you know, when you're pushing for the same money, you've got to be putting out at least the same or similar type of product as far as the games um, and also then the quality too, which the quality will come if you invest, but certainly the amount of games and things and how they're structured needs to improve. And a lot of that's on the NRL as well. So I'm looking at, at what they're going to do. Um, and I do think that it will make the NRLW players better too in the next coming coming couple of years. So all very positive, um, but we probably need to tread pretty quick carefully too on some of those topics when we're looking at uh, parity and um, going too fast, too hard as well, like the AFL did, which I didn't think was quite the right formula either. I kind of feel like the NRL and the AFL, somewhere in between what both of them did is probably the perfect patch to, to start at. Yeah, I agree, especially with the, the parity of pace and stuff. Like you, you just got to look at international sports like golf and tennis and things to see where the finances come from and the women's games taking that long to catch up to the men with that sort of the, when you're talking about finances and pay and even uh, women's soccer, which is massive around the world now and they're starting to get paid really well, but it, it just doesn't happen overnight. No, it doesn't. I mean, it took the men over 100 years, like like we said. Well, not quite 100 years, but, you know, 85 years or whatever it was before it was really properly professional and they weren't doing other jobs and stuff. So you know, I don't think it'll take the women's half that time, but it's still a long time. And, you know, and these girls are pioneers for the future generation of women, which is really important, but it's also something they need to remember when they're looking at their pay packet and looking at the male counterparts. It's just, it's not quite going to be the same at this point because, you know, it's just, it's in its infancy and it needs to grow. And I think that the NRL is doing it really well. Unrealistic to expect it to be. So it's really good for the game. Well, my young bloke's at under 11s now. He's watching Sunday Sixes, and half the sides you play will have at least one or two girls in them. And nine times out of 10, the girl on the side is the best player in the team in those ages. So if the NRL can harvest that and promote the women's game and get more young girls playing football, it's going to grow the game. So it's a good thing. And when me and you played, it used to be when the girls hit 12, they might have been the best player in the team, but that was their final season being able to play. And they had nowhere to go. Yeah, that's right. And they'd have to go and play nipple or something because, or basketball because it's a bit more physical or soccer and stuff. And you'd actually be, uh, you know, giving giving soccer extra players once they hit their teenage years because they couldn't actually play in a, a rugby league at all. So a lot of positives to take out of it. Um, just a little a little bit of temperament that's probably needed as well with the expansion. Uh, next topic, Perso. Some controversial ones. First of all, the concussion protocol. Um, that's that's been a big talking point for round one. Um, 
it's something that Bennett came out swinging at my roosters about, which I didn't particularly appreciate and neither did Robbo, but, you know, it's slightly different. I, I think that the, the big deal with it is that at the moment they've changed the concussion protocols for this season where they have a doctor in the bunker that reviews all the hits and can see all the different angles and then categorises different hits and makes players come off the field, basically. It's interesting because I, I've had that many chats with different people. I've read that much in the media about it and... I just, I can't get my head around. First of all, I think it's a great idea to have someone in the bunker that's a doctor that can look at things and see angles that the on-field guys can't and be able to say, you know, this guy needs to come off and be assessed because I'll say up front, player welfare has to be paramount. We've seen it all around the world. We've seen it in the game already. It's, it's really important. So you've got to treat it with all the integrity you can and all the importance you can. I kind of feel like, though, that the NRL is giving mixed messages with how they're doing it because they're saying all of this and that's why they're putting this in. But then, you know, you ask the question, well, why isn't there a doctor on the sideline also assessing or looking at it or chatting to the independent doctor in the bunker and, and doing it? Why can't we have the game, every game have that there on at the field as well? And then you kind of hear this, oh, you know, it costs a lot of money and stuff. You can't say that it's the most important thing in the game and player welfare is paramount and then say, oh, yeah, but we can't pay too much for it. Yeah, to me, it's, it really leaves a bad taste in my mouth that I don't think has been said enough. And when you're looking at the actual process and procedure, I just think it's flawed. Like if you were coming up with the perfect process, you would have what, exactly what they've done, but you wouldn't allow a bunker doctor to be able to rule a guy out for a game based on some vision on a television screen with no audio or context about what's happened or, or assessing the player. You know, you won't find a doctor in the world that will, you know, be able to that will look at a video of you as a patient and categorically diagnose and tell you what you have to do and what medication you need to take. They'll always want to be able to see you for any serious or semi-serious things anyway. So I don't know why the, the NRL has that there and doesn't have it. The, the ideal scenario for me, you have that there for sure, but that doctor doesn't put a category one on a player that rules them out. You know, or that category can be changed. You know, I would just have it that the bunker doctor can say number 12 roosters has to be taken from the field and assessed. And, and that's done. They've got to do it straight away. You then have the doctor at each game that's independent and that independent doctor looks at them, can even talk to the doctor in the bunker and assesses them. And maybe they'll say, oh, look, on assessment, you know, he's actually dislocated his shoulder. His neck's ruined, um, but his head's fine. He doesn't have a concussion, you know. Otherwise, that guy could be a Category 1 and it wasn't even the right injury. You know, and I remember seeing it. Jake Friend had a lot of different concussion issues and obviously retired from it, which is a real shame. But I remember seeing Jake Friend do his shoulder and got done for concussion for the game, even though he was, you know, it was a shoulder injury. And that's going to happen more and more. And we saw Victor Radley on the weekend, Category 1 ruled out for the game immediately by the bunker. But we also saw Billy Smith category one ruled out by the bar. And Billy Smith came off and said, I don't even know what I'm coming off for. And they said, you you got hit in the head. And he said, when? I don't even know what you're talking about. And they did the HR, the testing. He was fine. He didn't even know when the hit was. So, and, and that's the difference when you're talking about making assessments on a TV screen without having it backed up by on field. And I'll finish off Perso, but it's a little bit of a rant, but, by saying, again, my first point, if you're going to invest and talk about player welfare as being important, then don't say that you need to save money by not having a doctor there when you're a billion-dollar sporting league, one of the biggest in Australia. It, it just doesn't make sense. 
Uh, you've hit the nail straight on the head. I have the exact same opinion of it. And I know you're a Rooster supporter, so we'll take the bias out of it, but I agree with you 100% on that. Um, I understand where the NRL is coming with the, the independent doctor. I, I think it needed to happen. I think it's a good idea. There are too many teams were exploiting it both sides. Key players that um, get a head knock and then they'd be clutching a shoulder or a collarbone or a neck or whatever and they're trying to take that the uh, the focus off the actually did have a head knock and then at the same turn uh, there was a lot of sides that'd be using let's say a middle forward a prop or something and they'd fake a, a, a head knock and go off for a head assessment and get a free interchange so I understand where it's come from and it's a good idea where it's come from but like for me I'm as baffled as you are as to how you can have a guy watching a TV screen with no um actual contact with the player and say, that's no, category one, you're not coming back on. Um, the Victor Radley one, I'll, I'll use the Roosters game because there was two in that, that uh, probably two really good examples of where the flaws are with this system. Victor Radley came in really hard he, in that, but uh, he got his head in the wrong spot and he would, I felt him, but still, and he was down. So, uh, so he should have come off, but he didn't show signs. He was never wobbly at any point. He didn't show signs of a concussion. There's a fair, like he, he went in with his head, but he's no doubt he got a fair jar to his neck. Anyone that's playing the game will know what that was like. But under the system that they've got and the protocols they've got, he should have come off and he probably would have passed and come back on. For the the independent doctor to have no consultation with the guy or any, and just viewing what he's seen and say, grade one, not going back on. Yeah, righto. It's uh, I, I don't agree with that, but you can kind of see it if you could argue a point in the positive side for the protocols in place. Yeah, okay. He went in hard, hit his head, was on the ground for a bit. Fair enough. The Billy Smith one is the one that just blows me away. I had him in my supercase side, so I was watching him fairly closely. And when he came off, I couldn't even contemplate where the hit was. Like I didn't notice it myself. <laughs> It's like, so, yeah, exactly. so for, for the independent doctor to say, oh, no, that's a grade one, like, surely to Christ. <laughs> like, it, it, that one blew me away. I couldn't believe it. When he went off for a, a, a HO, I thought, oh, he'll be back. I can't even remember when he got hit in the head. Neither did he. He was fairly filthy about it. I, I thought Robbo handled the, uh, the press conference quite well with what he said with it. Yeah, and we're, we're focusing on the Roosters, but it's because it was two prime examples. And I mean... Yeah, hundred percent. The thing too is that if you, it, an independent doctor is rightly always going to err on the side of caution, and then and always whether, That's their job. whether it's rugby league or whether it's seeing you in a clinic, they're always going to err on the side of caution. So they're not going to, if there's a chance that someone has a category one injury, they're going to say category one, and it rules them out, and it just it it cannot be like that. It, baff- it baffles me that they all have that power over it when they don't actually see the player themselves. I've got no problem with the independent doctor. And if they say this guy needs to go with the field after the, uh, the club doctor doesn't, then they should go and do the assessment. There should be two doctors on hand so one can still watch the game live. The other one goes and assesses the player. I think that's where the system will work well. Yeah, 100%. Like, and it's, it's one of those things too where when you play the game, I actually got quite upset with Bennett. Um, with his comments, because like if you played rugby league, and not at NRL, any rugby league, it's a contact sport. Everybody's been hurt on the field many times, and you're basically saying to players, "Oh, if you lie on the ground, that's one of the criteria where you go on." And it's like, how many times per so have you been laid out on the ground? 
Sometimes you just get belted and winded and you can't get you up. You just don't want to. You, you just, <laughs> just give me 30 seconds. I got that. I can't count the amount of times I had a trainer come running up to me. You all right, Barnes? Mate, just give me 30 seconds. Don't touch me. Just look. Give me 30 seconds. 100%. You know? And it's like, and you saw it with Victor Adley, right? Now, he might have ended up being a concussion. It was definitely a bad one and it had to be assessed. No no dramas. But you saw him just put his hand on his head and go back and just sit there, you know, because he was like, that was that took it out of him. It, that's yeah, other, it, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's a concussion, but under the current criteria, you know, you're saying to blokes, playing NRL, contact sport, some of the best athletes in the world hitting each other as hard as they can. If you stay on the ground after any tackle or any tackle attempt, you're potentially going to be a criteria one and a category one and ruled out of a game. Yeah, like it's look, it's insanity. I think the idea is right, but they need to iron out the cruises. Otherwise, they're going to have to have a 27th man. You be going into some games and you you lose ten players. It's going to get crazy, isn't it? And like I'm going to give the I'm going to give the compliment sandwich to the NRL. Fantastic initiative to change it because, like you said, teams were doing the wrong thing and needs to be independent. Great, great move to see that and to put something in place for player welfare and to try and get the system better than what it was. But like classic NRL, when all of these changes end up happening, they always go half-assed. They never do the change all the way. They never put in the most common sense, best practice change in the first place. We've already seen it with the six again. <laughs> you know, the six again rule has already been tweaked multiple times now. And it's stuff that I think a lot of fans said, should have just been there in the first place? Because it made sense. And I think we're going to see it as well with the concussion. You know, we're going to see this one changed and tweaked a little bit. So it works better and better. I just don't understand why the NRL can't just bite the bullet invest some money in that and just do it right in the first place. Yeah, that's the thing that always kills me with these type of rules. Yeah, it's baffling. That's just, it's common sense, isn't it? But it just doesn't seem to be any common sense with it. It's sort of all the just reactive and oh, we'll react to it, the outcomes afterwards. I'm actually surprised they didn't cop it in the media as much over it this week. I expected to, them to cop it a fair bit. They really should. And, you know... I. It's a real cliche thing to say, oh, I hate for it to decide a grand final or State of Origin series. You know what? We get to a State of Origin series, you could have five guys ruled out for a Queensland team or a New South Wales team. And then all of a sudden, if they haven't made changes by then, they will be making it pretty quickly afterwards because it'll happen. You know, category one, category one, category one, you're all gone. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. So uh, I, I'm hopeful that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tweaked and common sense will prevail. It is a great thing that they're putting in extra extra criterias and extra processes because it needed. And it's a great thing that it's been taken out of the club's hands to a degree, which I think is needed as well. Do need to take a short break just to quickly mention a fantastic partner of the All-Stars podcast in Top Sport. Top Sport is a 100% Australian-owned bookmaker who often has best odds in market, fantastic service, all based in Australia. And they also happen to have fantastic markets for the NRL. Top Sport often have great odds in market, not just for NRL, but for all sports and racing if you're interested. Make sure you do gamble responsibly, but if you're going to have a gamble, go on Top Sport, www.topsport.com.au, or download the app and have a go there. But make sure you use our promo code, that is SC All Stars, or one word, just SC All Stars, and then they'll know take good care of you because they'll know that you're one of our listeners that have come over to give Top Sport a go. Topsport.com.au, get on and have a punt today. Uh, another big thing that's on the agenda for both the judiciary and the rule book is cannonball time. Yeah. So cannonball tackle has made its way 
back yeah. into the game. It was um, resurfaced. Where's it come from? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of come out of nowhere. Um, and I, you know, I'm on I'm on either side of the fence with this one, Perso. So I'm going to see if you can talk me down to one side here on it. But we've seen a, a lot of tackles, both in the trials and also in the games, where players are being held up um, by two other players, and, and a third player comes in, generally a third one, and, and takes their legs out. The difference between what we've seen with a couple of these, though, and a classic cannonball is the cannonballs are the ones that come in really hard and drive at the knees. Whereas I think there's been some confusion with some of the tackles we've seen because it's been guys that have come in and even almost kind of grabbed around their ankles and and put their legs together. So it hasn't been quite that driving, but it's still quite dangerous um, and it still can obviously collapse a guy's legs. So it's not great and doesn't look good. So I get that. And I don't like the look of it. And I kind of look away and go, oh, that looked bad. But at the same time, as someone who's played rugby league and watching the game as well, a few times I've, I've seen it where it hasn't actually, no one said anything about it. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, that bloke with the ball, he's a 115 kilo wrecking ball. He's got a halfback and a centre on him. And he's still making metres and metres and metres. And the only way to stop that as a player is that you have to go and, and grab his legs. And what I've seen with some of the tackles is they've actually gone and grabbed it pretty softly. Like I've watched one of the one of the Lindsay Collins ones was really bad. No, I think that was a trial one. It was really bad. The other one I, I thought looked worse, but if you watch the replays, he kind of puts his arms around the, the ankles and pulls the ankles together and the bloke comes down and he kind of falls on the ground himself as well. But he, he's grabbing the ankles together. And if you're grabbing someone at speed and you've got to go for the legs it's pretty hard. Like if you're going in as soft as you can and you're grabbing the legs and it's still bad, then you, what, what do you kind of do? You know, it's, I'm not saying either way, I'm not defending some of the tackles, but you know, again, playing the game, I don't know what I would do because I need to be able to tackle the legs sometimes. And we're getting to a point now where any legs tackle where there's already a defender on a guy is dangerous waters. Oh, you've hit the nail on the head again with that. Um, that one Lindsay Collins trial was bad, but he didn't get much out of it. <laughs> the same game, Tamo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how the judiciary works, Finnegan. But Tamo took out the legs and, and that as well. That was, that was, uh, uh, couldn't believe that what happened out of that one game. But anyway, um, yeah, that's, I think the common sense, that's again, that's the common sense. You watch these, the one in the Melbourne game on the weekend, that was a bit of an old school cannibal. We came in on Lay Lua old. Lorello. He came in with a that bit of force in that one, I thought. That's right, he did. Yeah, yeah. And I haven't seen that much lately, but all this talk about Cannonball, and all of a sudden it sort of started to turn up again. But I think the, a bit more common sense, and you've got to put the refs into a bit of onus of that. When you've got a guy that's not moving and you've got two guys on him, which was that case, just call help. Mm. You don't need the third guy to come in. But if you don't call help, the third guy is going to come in and try and grasp. And because you have to, right? Like you can't you can't 100%. allow the meters to be made and you can't allow the guy to keep going. And and until held's been called, the guy can pop an offload. Exactly. So you you gotta have it both ways. Yeah, I think the cannibal's been picked up a bit more than what's actually happening, but like you said with that second one, I don't know when he talked it with Collins. He, he there was nothing in that, he just came in and grasped him, basically. Yeah, and we've got to be really careful. Like, if you've got a game that's the whole premise of the defence is to tackle people, we've already got, you know, you, you can't tackle around the head and you shouldn't be able to. But then we've also got, you know, if you hit someone around the chest or, or, or graze their neck and it's not hard, you still get penalties half the time too. So it becomes really hard because those chest hits end up 
bouncing up and you get in big trouble and you can get suspended. We've already got all that. We've already got no shoulder charges, so you can't hit people like that. That's fine. I get it. But then if you start saying you can't tackle guys around the legs either or overcomplicate things by saying, you know, if there's one defender on someone or two defenders on someone, then you can't touch them below the waist, it becomes really difficult and really far too technical. You know, I, I it's... Oh, 100%. And they've already come out and changed the judicial system this year, given a clean slate to everyone. Grade ones will no longer be a suspension. It'll just be fines. So, so or you can do a grade one shoulder charge now all of a sudden and you're not going to get suspended, you just get a fine. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, How do you keep up with it? The common sense, like you said, is, again, the thing at the forefront. And I, I think education too. Like, I'm, I'm quite – the NRL does a lot of positive things with some of this stuff when it tries to stamp out tackles, and I kind of applaud it and I go good on them. But then they don't do enough in promoting and educating it to fans. Like – there's that many people that I've seen call things cannonball tackles. I was in the pub in that Sharks Canberra game, like I said. That many people say, "Oh, cannonball tackle." No, he's just hit the guy around the ankles, you know, with with somebody on his shoulder. It's not, and he did it softly. The players do it that soft now when they go around the legs. I'm surprised half of them they get kicked in the face. Well, that's the thing. Suddenly you get one or two in a trial, and all of a sudden the cannonballs are the flavour of the month. So everyone's looking for it, and something that looks half like, "Oh, cannonball," you know, <laughs> it's. <laughs> it can, look, it can be really bad. And I think the NRL needs to probably, you know, set the criteria on it. You know, hitting around the knee area um, with force is going to be yep. bad and you're going to miss games. Hitting someone without force around the ankles or grabbing their legs together to stop momentum in a tackle, you know, that's it, that's fair game. And I, I think that we really need to differentiate between the two because they're two very different types 100%. of tackles. And sometimes one looks bad just because the guy goes down really hard, but... You know, you see that in under sixes when you used to teach people how to tackle. You'd say to a five-year-old, hit the guy around yeah, the legs. They exactly. can't run without legs. And you see someone get their legs taken out from them, they go down real hard straight away. They're fine, but they go down fast. And when you see bigger guys do that, I think sometimes people cringe. But in summary, to finish off, Perso, I, I actually really like your point, and I've said it for a long time. It is always in control of the referee. And it's been like that with the wrestle as well. And some of this comes about because of the wrestle, right? And I've always said... Forget about rules with the wrestle. Make the referees take control of games. If players, they're the ones that control it. That's right. And if players are wrestling and there's no momentum, or you know they're not really going anywhere, or they've had long enough to have second phase play, you call held straight away. And the Super League actually does it better than us. They'll call held, and it stops the wrestling happening because there's no more time. And if they don't get off, they get penalised. And it also stops the third man from coming in or guys holding someone up. You know, so I, I think that's going to fix a lot of these issues if we just start doing that a little bit more. And they talk about wanting to speed up the game. You don't need all these six-gen rules or anything to speed the game up. Get the referees to call help quicker. That'll speed it up. That's right. Yeah, Super League is a prime example of that. And, that, and the other thing that I mentioned, which is why I brought up the judiciary, like it's just that's if you want that stuff out, then suspend a black for 12 weeks when he dies in a bloke's knees. But you don't even get suspended for tripping. I can tell you the lot. Like when we were playing, Barnes, that was one of the worst things you could do in a football yeah. field. Short of, oh, short yeah, of oh, yeah, someone. And you, there hasn't been a suspension for a decade. Look, I just don't, I don't get the whole side of that stuff. So if they really want to get this crap out of the game, when someone does something, make an example of them, mm. suspend them for that, get rid of your point system and all the rest of it, just say, that you, I test, that was fucked. Yeah. <laughs> You're gone, mate. You can't do that. We want that out of the game. Yeah, exactly right. And I... I Hopefully with some changes at judiciary, I don't agree with how they've done it and how they tried to push it through the day before the kickoff and stuff like that. But 
It, it, all I can think of is just due to the COVID. Well, look, I, I'm just a, I, I, I'm just going to be positive about it and say I'm glad they're looking at it because it's stuff that needs to be looked at and at least the NRL is looking at it and that's a positive. So next topic and the last one is the Melbourne Storm. So the Melbourne Storm just last year extended Brian Pappenhausen to a $2 million deal, which was a fantastic deal by them and a great contract that the Storm are known for. The rest of that spine, though, needs to be re-signed. So... Huge reports at the moment that Melbourne are preparing $8 million bucks in total to go across Munster, Harry Grant and Jerome Hughes to try and keep that spine intact. Big news, Perso, um, and even bigger news is that there's been recent reports that Munster's set to reject an uh, offer from the Storm, their initial offer, and Grant's eyeing off a $3 million deal, which is what he's after. So the, the Jerome Hughes deal, they've reportedly already offered him a six-year deal, which is huge, for $5 million, uh, which is a pretty long-term deal for Jerome Hughes as well. So I think for me, Perso, um, it makes sense when you're trying to keep the spine together like that. All those players are exceptionally talented. All of them have a right to be labelled as stars, including Jerome Hughes, who I think has really, the last two years, improved his football out of sight. I'm amazed at how much he's improved his game. But that spine for the Storm, you know, you can put whatever with it. And as long as you've got that spine there, you should be able to, you know, compete and be playing playoff footy every year in semifinals. So I get it. It's a lot of money, but it's worth it. The problem for the Storm at the moment is they've got the Dolphins circling uh, and the Dolphins are, are looking at all three of those players. So I guess the question to you is, you know, what do you think about the Storm trying to resign all three and, and spend a lot of their salary cap on that spine for a start? And secondly, do you think they can actually do it? Well, a lot of that hinges on Bellamy, doesn't it? If Bellamy's going to be there, then um, 100% they can do that. And then you lock that spine away, and they always got a way to bring guys into that system. I put them and probably the Roosters as the two best teams in the comp for a long time now that manage their salary cap better than anyone else. So And they've probably got the recruitment better than anyone else. They can identify players that they can bring into their system and will do a job for them. And then they can improve to a point where they will do a really good job for them. So definitely locking those four in, you'd, you wouldn't worry about the Storm's future if they could. I don't really think they'd be going too far overs in doing what they're doing. But if they do lose a couple more, <laughs> Bennett is circling and trying to pluck the eyes out of the Storm, it seems. But... Uh, that starts to become a concern, but I think a lot hangs on Bellamy. Is he going to give? Is he like he says? Will you still be? I've, there's a Matty Johns uh, podcast I listen to, and he says we still be cashing in 2025. He says no. Nah. Uh, Matty Johns said, "Well, you said that ten years ago." I, I mean, he's got until March 31st <laughs> to decide whether he's coaching just next year. You know, March 31st, he could say, "Yeah, oh, I'm actually going to go into the head office role next year and not be coaching." And then all of a sudden, if these guys aren't re-signed, that changes, that changes lot, things. Doesn't. 100%. That's, uh, that's the massive key for that. So, I mean, for me, for, if I'm the Dolphins, 100% they're the players that they need to be targeting. And they, to be honest, for the Dolphins to be successful, they've got to get one of them. You know, I, But I would pay massive overs for two of them. And I reckon if you do that, all of a sudden the Dolphins are looking a lot better. The thing that works in Wayne Bennett's favour to try and poach these guys, and why I think there is a chance that they're not going to secure all of them, is that uh, there's already a, a few Storm players already over there, right? They've got Kafusi and they've got both Bromwich brothers already at the Dolphins. So that's already going to make some of these Storm guys feel at ease. If they are going to move clubs, it's going to be at a club where they've got a few boys that they've been playing with for a number of years. That's one thing. The other thing too is that if I'm the Dolphins, 
I am definitely offering overs. Now, the question is, Perso, who do you offer overs to? Now, do you go after Munster number one, which is who's been reported as the number one on the Dolphins' radar for a while? Or do you go, you know what, maybe I can get Jerome Hughes and, and uh, Grant over, and the nine and seven is going to be more important. I'll leave Cameron Munster, who's a bit older as well. Grant's obviously the youngest out of the three too. So that's that's a big question too on how you manage it if you're Bennett because you can't have all three. Which ones do you choose? And as well, if you're the Melbourne Storm, what's your priority? If you're going to lose one of them, which one is it? I priority for both would be Munster, I'd say, and that's uh, probably more to do with being a, one of those real locker room players as well, as well as being a good on-field player. For the Storm, they've already lost the cheese. If they lose Munster as well, that's probably their two biggest locker room players. Plus a lot of the old heads that have been there for ages, as you said, the Bromwich brothers and Kafusi. So that, that really changed the dynamic. I just need to ask, is locker room like a, a secret word for the Coke brothers? Or <laughs> <laughs> Nah, you know, off the field. In the fact, like the guys that you, it's just, they're sort of the characters that sort of get away with a bit more than they need to. And the, it's the camaraderie, you know, it's like when you're playing with those guys. And yeah, yeah, for sure. I'd have a massive loss losing both Jews and Munster for the Storm off the field as much as on the field in one year, especially with all the old heads going. So I think Melbourne will really try and prioritise Munster. And obviously Hughes, they know they've got a huge respect for Hughes. And I don't think Hughes would be as good a player if he left that system. I agree with you. He's, he's probably the one. Him and Yo are probably the two most underrated players and players that have come on and developed in the last couple of seasons as well. He could have, his wasn't he a halfback really three rocked. years ago. Like three years ago, I wouldn't even say that's he's right. Halfback. I don't think he could do it. No, he was, they bought him there as a fullback <laughs> and he, he couldn't establish himself at the Titans or the um, Cowboys. Mm. So what's happened in that system has been unbelievable. I don't think Hughes would be the player he is without being in that system. I don't think he'll be the player he is if he loses that system. So I think he'll stay. That's a given. So you got him and Pappenhaus and what happens with Grant and Munster? Grant's a Queenslander as well. So the Dolphins, if they pick both of those guys up, I think that'd be fantastic for the Dolphins and pretty uh, not very good for the Storm. I would pay big overs. like That's what I would do, but I'd do it for a short period. So, like, people criticise contracts when it's too much, including me. And, like, if you're talking about, like, people throw around silly numbers, like, well, you know, would you play, pay Turbo $2 million a year? And all these fans say, yep. And so, no, if you're paying a guy for five years $2 million a year, there is that much risk involved in that little that you can do with the rest of your cap that you're just killing yourself. You can't have a $2 million. But if you say to Drone Muse, all right, like, you're getting eight hundred k a year for six years, that's going to give you stability. But what if we pay you you know, $1.3 million a year for two years. That's an extra million bucks in that two years compared to what you get on that contract. And you play good footy here, you can then just go and sign another five-year deal, even go back to Melbourne if you want, but get an extra million bucks in the first two years. You know, that's the type of thing that I think they can do. And that's the type of thing where if if Bellamy doesn't stay, I think that money will talk. Because if you offer a guy an extra 500K a year, if he's not, you know, if he doesn't have injury issues or he's not right at the end of his career, I think that he might prioritise that over the, the six-year deal, you know, because he'd be thinking to himself and the manager certainly will be saying to him with his commission in mind, take the bigger money, mate, because in two years' time, I'll get you a five-year deal, you know, don't worry about it. 100%. That's the danger, isn't it? Especially if Bellamy decides he comes out, he's going to hang up. That's, I'd be a mass exit if they're in Melbourne when there's all this, when, especially with the Dolphins throwing money around and they need some marquee signings. That's, that's a massive danger. But if that doesn't happen, Hughes would take the, 
stay where he is because there's no he, he get offered big money out there and then has a couple of dead seasons. He might be in a similar situation where he won't be able to get a more than three or four hundred grand. Yeah, and that's that, so. that's going to be the danger for him. I actually think Grant's being um, quite undervalued, and it's kind of a good time to go after Harry Grant because he's only just put together a couple of seasons, and each of them he's only played sixteen and fifteen games, despite how well he's played. He's pretty early on in his NRL career, so I don't think he's quite rated at the level of star I think he could be. So to me, out of the three, I actually think he's the most interesting for the Dolphins. He's the youngest, and he's the one where you might actually hit on the best value. Like you could offer Grant, uh, like he's talking about three million bucks over four at the moment. You could offer him four million over four and, and possibly get him. And he's already had a really good season outside of the Storm system with your Tigers as well. So hundred percent. If I was at the Dolphins, I'd be throwing the ball getting, especially in that position. How crucial it is to have a, a really quality number nine in your spine, and there's not many of them going around. So that and, and they missed out on Marnie. Like if they could land, he's one player that the Dolphins could be quite happy paying 600k overs if they signed him like a shorter contract or two or three mm. years. They would offer him something like that. That'd be massive to get him up. He's there. probably the only one I'd give a long term contract to out of the three, um, it, like comfortably. Like I'd, I'd probably pay Grant overs like over a four year contract for sure, just because of his age and just because of the potential value you could get. But it's funny because you say with the Dolphins, like I'm saying, that he's my number one guy, I reckon, just because of those factors. But he's also probably the number one guy to me for Melbourne because the thing is, the elephant in the room is that Melbourne had a real luxury where they let you know Grant play at the Tigers and they, if they lost him, it wasn't a big deal as much as what it is now because they had Brandon Smith. You know, worst case scenario, they put Brandon Smith at hooker, they take a few kilos off him and they, they make him back into a, a full-time hooker and they're fine. They don't have Brandon Smith anymore. So Harry Grant's become that much more important for them. And I actually reckon, I understand why you'd say Munster, and I don't think there's a right or wrong answer with this, but I actually think that Munster has, uh, it's he's kind of done for me at Melbourne. Um, if I'm deciding between them, I'd probably let him go out of the three. And that it's not to say I think he's the worst player, but he's kind of, it's one of those things, per se, where it happens with a lot of different things and even a lot of different jobs and occupations where it gets a bit stale. And if you've had history somewhere, it's really hard to run or change that history going forward. And as much as he can say, I'm off the alcohol, I've been in rehab, and that all might be the case and it might not all mean he has a good season, but it's always going to be there. It's always going to be there every time he goes to training, every time he goes to that team, every time he goes to that field. And it's always going to be there for that organisation as well and that team. Sometimes it's better for both parties just to cut ties and go, it was great while it lasted, you know, one of the best relationships I've ever had, but I'm going to move on and find someone else to marry uh, and get someone else in. You know? And I kind of feel that way with Munster. So for me, I've actually got him at the bottom of the pile um, because I think they can build around Grant much more into the future. And he's a lot less volatile to Grant and Hughes compared to the Munster personality. Performance-wise on the field, yeah, 100%. And... Five-eighths are probably more easily replaced than hookers, so I do agree with that. Yep, yep. That's another really key one too. Um, look, I think the Storm are in a real tight spot. To finish off on the segment, mate, make a call. I'm going to say that they kicked two out of three of them. Do you reckon they're going to – how many do you reckon you, they're going to be able to keep? Well, obviously the Papanans already saw I reckon there's a fair chance they just keep years. Yeah, and you reckon there's a package deal that goes to the Dolphins? I can see, yeah. It, it all, as I said, it all hangs on Bellamy, but I'd, sooner or later, the Dolphins are going to have to throw some 
big coin got some big players and I I got a feeling that Grant and Munster are priority number one for Bennett. I'd like to see it just for the Dolphins because I want to see any expansion team succeed and they really, really need a star player. So I think that'd be great. Perso, that is the end of the Talking Footy podcast. Really appreciate you jumping on, mate. It's been a fantastic podcast and great to talk footy with you. Oh, it's been good fun as always, Bunchy. That was, that was awesome, mate. Cheers, mate. Everyone that wants to listen to this podcast, you can download or stream us on Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, NRL underscore SC underscore all stars and you can also jump on our sponsor too fantastic sponsor top sport top sport have some of the best odds in the market out of all the bookies and they are 100 australian owned use sc all stars as your promo code and open an account today and thanks very much for listening on the podcast agenda for the next week we have the tlt podcast that will drop on wednesday it's a tlt for super coach so your 100 super coach podcast on wednesday next week and then you have your talking footy episode five dropping on Friday of next week. In the meantime, enjoy the round two of games. Enjoy the footy. Can't wait to talk about it again in a week's time. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star.